0: Hey guys, welcome and thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And I am so excited to have the guest that I have on our show today. He is the founder and CEO of the Humboldt Seed Company. He's the expert on creating new strains and has been breeding cannabis and working to restore rivers and salmon populations in Humboldt County. California, for over 20 years. With a deep foundation in Humboldt County and a strong affinity for the community, he's founded several nonprofit organizations, most recently Nature Rights Council, an environmental organization led by Humboldt's indigenous youth. Nathaniel Pennington, thank you so much for being a part of the show today, man.
1: Thank you, Montel. I'm, I'm really honored.
0: Oh, man, I'm, I'm honored to have you. You've been a... Uh, You know, a thought leader and not only a thought leader, but a a industry leader, because I think you set the standard that a lot of these people all over the country are going to have to try their best to attempt to meet. And I really believe that people should try to meet your standard. Not that, you know, I'm trying to build competition for you, but until we fix state laws, unless you're ready to jump into every single individual state. And I I want to talk a little bit about that. But, you know, um, we got to make sure that we can replicate this same attitude and affinity for and love for the plant, the way you have. So thank you for all you do, sir.
1: Well, you know, like I said, um, we feel like we've been given this opportunity in Humboldt. It's an honor to be here with you and to share, you know, kind of the, the culture and our convictions as, you know, people advocates for, for cannabis and the plant and, uh, you know, the medicine that it brings. So.
0: Absolutely. And that's where, you know, I think, you know, where we've kind of gone back and forth with this thing because, you know, first started off and everybody jumped aboard medical or didn't really jump aboard it that quick. It took almost 14 years to get people to start recognizing the medical efficaciousness of the plant And then immediately people jumped by all those who had done all the groundwork to provide efficacious medicine. And they jumped into, Oh, let's get this all legalized you know, and and do adult use immediately. And now it seems like there's not that we're sliding back, but it seems like there's attention being, you know, brought to the issue of medication, you know, because I think people are now starting to recognize whether or not be adult use or medical use. It's pretty much the same. Almost anybody who's drawn to this plant, whether they admit it or not, probably have an underlying medical reason why they were drawn there in the first place. They wanted to get off alcohol because it didn't do what they were expecting it to do for them. And so they shifted over to cannabis and said, Oh, wow, you know, this is really helping me relax. It's really helping me sleep. It's really helping some of my pain. It's helping to ease some of the tensions of the day. It's eating some of the tensions of aging. Those are all medical reasons. Whether or not we admit it or not, that's another thing. But when you know we look at states who are trying to pass this adult use thing, recreational, we find that. The majority of people who show up in the lines to get the recreational cannabis are people who were the former medical cannabis users. So I'm so glad that there are people like you that are paying attention to trying to provide the most efficacious seeds that we can actually use to grow efficacious medicine. That's really what's important. Let's back up a little bit, my friend. I mean, what inspired you to get involved in you know, farming cannabis to begin with?
1: Well, you know, I, I, as a young You know, as a youth, let's just say I had interest in cannabis and whether, you know, to your point, whether I knew it or not, it was something that helped me and it provided me, you know, a relief from whether it's, you know, just the stresses of modern life or whatever it might be. But coming here to Humboldt County, which, you know, for folks that may not know has been, you know, for Decades and decades has been this Mecca of, of cannabis, whether it was clandestine cannabis or you know, as we move more into the the light, uh, what we have now. So being here, I, I didn't exactly come too humble from you know New York and Philadelphia to become a cannabis farmer, but getting here, it was part of the culture and having you know had this love for cannabis already, it it kind of just was, you know, a natural progression for me. And of course, I was only 18 years old when I got here. So, you know, there was still a lot of uh, it was my formative years, let's just say. And, you know, I also spent quite some time studying salmon biology and, and working in the field of salmon restoration. And so the breeding aspect of cannabis which is somewhat scientific, kind of dovetailed really well with the scientific work that I was doing for our local rivers and and particularly the salmon.
0: When you first got to Humboldt, that's what you worked in. You were working in salmon restoration and and genetically trying to help, you know, salmon, you know, I guess evolve to be hardier and sustain some of the damage that mankind had done. And then that's what trans you use that same kind of knowledge to say, hmm. So something we ought to do with this plant, right?
1: Yeah. And of course, you know, back in the late 90s, we were just, I mean, the first time I voted uh, in a, you know, the first time I voted as a U.S. citizen, I voted for medical cannabis in 1996 in California. And uh, a hero of mine, someone that I actually got to, to know, Dennis Perone, was the primary author of that initiative. He was uh, an amazing person. We lost him about two, two, two and a half years ago. But um, you know, it's he. I, I credit that work that he did in the Bay Area. Um, you know, he was in the the gay community there, and you know, there was a lot of of pain and suffering from you know things that affect every one of us, like cancer and you know, chronic disease and, and HIV was something that was, you know, still a a major problem. A lot of the, you know, modern, uh, treatments that we have didn't exist in the late nineties. And so, you know, cannabis and, and as a pain relief mechanism, it's just, it was a no brainer. And it was so great to see that kind of coalesce in California and, you know, create this medical cannabis um, reality that, that we have lived in. And I believe that we really do still live in.
0: I mean, I think a lot of people don't remember that, you know, back then uh, Dennis's activism was really born out of the fact that he was turned down for participating in the program that started out of the University of Mississippi, that our government was funding research for way back then. People don't even recognize the fact that, you know, this isn't new. We act like, you know, what's that all of a sudden in the last five years, cannabis all of a sudden took off at the government level. But most people don't even know that the U.S. government filed for its own patent in 1999 and gave itself a patent in 2002 for CBD, something that no one talked about for another 14 years. And back then, you know, we did start that program at the University of Mississippi. Uh, that was a compassionate care program that literally was initiated by a lot of people that were in the gay community who were suffering from the ravages of HIV and needed something for relief And, you know, then the first daddy Bush, you know, uh, had implemented the compassionate care program that ended up and is still being funded today uh, through the university of Mississippi. And I know that, you know, when they cut it off, that sent a lot of people scrambling. And Dennis was one of those people who was scrambling, trying to figure out how can I have access to and started working as hard as he did in California to make this available to all people suffering from maladies that needed this kind of medication. And that's something that I think, you know, we lack the historical education on this, you know, when we try to spread the word about cannabis because You know, a lot of people forget that there were people like Dennis's friends and others who were dragged out of their homes on gurneys in their beds, you know, uh, because they were growing a plant in their backyard. And, you know, now we don't even think in terms of how to recognize that contribution. We're just moving forward, you know, as greedy in some cases as we can be. I'm so glad that you're doing what you're doing. But let's go back to the early days of, you know, really, you know, stumbling into, Cannabis, I mean, when you first started applying some of your knowledge from the salmon industry into the cannabis industry, what were you attempting to do?
1: Well, it was interesting because, you know, we specialize in cannabis breeding and making seeds. And so there hadn't been and don't get me wrong, because I always I don't want to ever come off like I'm discrediting all of the breeding that was done you know even in places like india and nepal and and historically you know there's been a lot of work on the cannabis genome but you know since prohibition it hasn't been able to be out in the open and we haven't been able to share knowledge and and openly you know publish research and things like that that you know we're always Doing that in the scientific community and because cannabis wasn't really given that benefit, the ability to move the the species in the direction that is, you know, most beneficial to humans and, you know, sometimes also just easier to grow and and more, you know, friendly for beginners those things all were, were kind of lacking and, and way behind modern agricultural science. And so-
0: yeah, Well, a lot, know, of, it, a lot of people don't even know that, you know, it was the United States of America that in the 1960s, a lot of the growers that were up there in the Humboldt County area and a lot of the growers that were hidden and tucked away down in Tennessee, I mean, sorry, in Kentucky and places like that were trying their best to breed the CBD out of the plant. Remember that? I mean, I think, you know, there was back in early late or mid to late 60s and early 70s, everybody was trying their best to see if they could breed the highest level THC that they could. That's the reason why we've seen the THC levels rise from, you know, 2%, 3% and then in the 70s to 7 and 8% and then the 80s to 9 and 10% to now these 17 and 18 plus percentage points for THC, which is really unnecessary. So have you been, did you jump into this fray to try to see if you could rebalance the plant back to, you know, the original seven species that the, you know, the good good earth gave us?
1: Yeah, well, we did recently partner up with uh, California's largest Native American tribe, uh, the Yurok tribe, and they just so happened to be largely based here in Humboldt County. This is, you know, their ancestral territory along with several other tribes as well. But um, in doing that, we're focused on primarily on on CBD and and hemp type varieties and some of the other minor cannabinoids that I think, you know, are are obviously understudied and sometimes even underappreciated. So um, that's been a, a lot of fun and that's been kind of really rewarding for us. We did start kind of working in the CBD world around four or five years ago, six years ago, even I think when, when we developed a variety with uh, a local person here, a guy named Willie G who has um, pretty severe cerebral palsy and always had used cannabis and really enjoyed CBD for, you know, to, to help him. He doesn't, take a lot of the, you know, like opioids and things that he gets offered. And so he, he relies heavily on cannabis and he finds that it, it helps him to not, you know, he has less side effects from it. And so we have uh, the Willie G's CBD variety that we've been working on for quite some time. And, You know, I I have to agree with you. There's so much more to cannabis than just the THC, which everyone focuses on. And it it is a little unfortunate that with uh, recreational cannabis, most states require that, you know, producers like us. I mean, we're primarily a seed producer, but we make flour as well. And we... The, the THC level has to be so prominent, almost as if it's it dictates completely how the cannabis will affect you. Whereas I think most experienced cannabis users know that there's much more to that. And so saying, you know, this cannabis has 25 or 30% THC, that one's going to get you, you know, affect you so much more than something that only has... 10 to you know, 15, but has uh, a unique array of turpins. Uh, if you've ever firsthand experienced that, I think most people know that, you know, there are, there's a huge entourage effect that comes to play in cannabis. And we have a lot to learn, but you can't simplify it down to just the one molecule.
0: People have known this for over 30 years. Back when Raphael Mechoulam discovered this and discovered the endocannabinoid system, and recognized the different receptors involved, and recognized that he didn't know it all. Even when he even explained it to us that there's CB1, CB2 connectors that you know CB1 seem to attract and are the receptors that are available in our brains that, and also some of our peripheral t- uh, organs. But CBD or THC is primarily absorbed by CB1 connector, but the CB1 is also, you know, um, responsible for interpreting some of those other cannabinoids. And they do that at the same time. Same thing with CB2. You know, uh, the, 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 the connectors that we see in our peripheral organs actually have the ability to absorb and, and, and are antagonized by THC, but they're also antagonized by CBG, by T- CBD or CBD, CBN, several of them. And I, I, I think you're absolutely right. We have just barely started scratching the surface of the viability of all of the component parts of this plant, including the flavonoids, including like you say, the terpenes or terpenes, which we know have been studied, terpenes have been studied now for 40 years, especially in other plants. So it's not like, you know, this is something brand new, but now there are people out here trying to act as if it's brand new. Let's go back to, you know, the, did you first set out to develop different strains or did you set out to develop the different content, the, the ratio content of you know, the different cannabinoids and the terpenes? What was your initial mission? You know,
1: I always believed in kind of using your, your gut and, you know, how some dietitians to say, you know, if it, if it looks good and it tastes good for you, then it's probably good for you. You know, obviously minus certain things, but uh, we, we started out without labs. So we didn't have any there, no lab would take a sample of cannabis in 1997 and 98. And I think some of the first labs in California opened up in the early 2000s, and so you, you really just had to breed using your your instincts and your better judgment. And we developed some early varietals. Like one of our more popular varieties is the Blueberry Muffin, and it for me it had this amazing effect of, you know, being uplifting and being calming and soothing and n- almost never, well, I, I could even just say never causing any of the anxiety and paranoia that sometimes is associated when you create such uh THC exclusive type varieties. And so, mm-hmm.
0: What does what, what the profile that look like from a percentage standpoint? What's the percentage of THC to CBD, CBN, and other cannabinoids?
1: So, you know, it, it has a r- fairly high THC, but it's in the low 20s most of the time, sometimes kind of right at 18, 19, 20 to 22 in there. And it But you mentioned flavonoids, and it's incredibly high in flavonoids, and it does have you know, some of the more common turpins found in cannabis. But the reality is, is that, you know, it's so full of, of flavins, cannaflavins that we don't know enough about, like, I don't know if you saw that study that just came out about how cannaflavins were found to be at least as powerful of an anti-inflammatory as something like aspirin, which, you know, obviously was a a huge discovery. And so, you know, I think that we still do need to use our experience with the plant and get out there and, you know, try a number of different cannabis varieties before we can, without a doubt, say what Works for us because each person is different, and you know someone brought something up to me the other day that I thought was was really smart. And you know, as we're seeing with this you know recent pandemic and all of the different health issues that that we're dealing with in in modern life, you know the the problems that we're facing are not static. The issues that we have and and our bodies are dynamic. And so, you know, it's nice to create medicines that, that are consistent. And I do agree that we need to have consistency with cannabis as a medicine, but I also think that we're nowhere near to being able to say, okay, our job is done. We've created, you know, this pill that it has THC in it. And, and this is all that cannabis has to offer. We have to really dive in much, much deeper. And sometimes that just is trial and error with um going out there and picking strains and so we've found strains that have appealed to us pre-laboratory that have then you know come forward and and we're discovering that they are rich in certain cannabinoids and and things like canflavins and terpenes and and these other you know less studied components and uh you know it's it's i guess uh re- reinstills our confidence that you know it you can do a lot as just a human and then you add the lab factor the lab component and it's even better so
0: absolutely and i think what we're finding right now i think you nailed it you hit it in my head every patient who uses cannabis is different everybody metabolizes it different everybody you know uh, ends up their body ends up interpreting it differently and that's the reason why i think this entire idea of the whole plant medicine is probably the best idea, especially so that each individual can basically find that Goldilocks zone for themselves. Uh, And whether it be through the different strains that are now coming up, how many strains do you guys have now?
1: Well, if you include our, our hemp variety that we we co-produced with the Yurok tribe, I think we're around 55 varietals and 10 of them being, uh, hemp varieties or CBD rich varieties, should I say? And then the other around 45 being THC types.
0: Gotcha. Well, now how can growers benefit by using Humboldt seed? I mean, you know, there's lots of companies that are producing seeds out there. What what makes yours different so that people understand?
1: Well, you know, I think that it, it one thing I can say for sure is that being here in Humboldt County, which, you know, I mentioned earlier is this, mecca of, of cannabis and where a lot of things innovation in the industry have come from here and so we certainly kind of, no one it we're kind of held to a high standard as being sort of the seed company and humble and you know when something doesn't work for people when the you know, the seeds are not consistent enough, let's just say, or or whatever problems, people aren't shy about bringing them to our attention. So we, you know, kind of are sort of in the gauntlet of cannabis growing here. And uh, we're proud to say that, you know, we've been given the best seed company in Humboldt award for five years in a row and and so on and so forth. We are the largest Seed company in California, actually getting out and growing the plants. Um, and, you know, we've got quite the uh, diversity. We don't just focus on one thing. And so, you know, we've also got auto flower varieties, which I think um, one thing that we're really, we really care a lot about is that people can grow their own cannabis if they so choose and we really really hope that as um uh, you know legalization sweeps the nation which i i think is inevitable but um you know sooner than later hopefully and we hope that states or the federal government however it's decided doesn't rule out the people's ability to be able to you know have some plants on their own have at least a certain number of plants to be able to to try their hand at at growing their own medicine and uh so we we try to not only just you know service the larger agricultural industry here in california but kind of keep our um you know Devote as much ten- attention as we can to the, the small, the little guy, let's just say, or the mom and pop or the people just wanting to grow, you know, literally grow their own medicine.
0: Well, when you said that uh, things are going to change soon. I, you know, I think at this last election. Is any indicator we understand that now we're sitting at 39 states plus the District of Columbia that all have legalized cannabis. Uh, that brings us to you know, almost, what, 81, 88% of the country that has legalized cannabis. And it seems ridiculous that the rest of the country won't follow suit, but I think you've got some diehards out there that are going to drag their feet as hard as they can and leave fingernail marks down the highway just because. It has nothing to do with any reality. It's just because. Uh, the same way we're seeing people fight back now against the will of the people. You know, we know that all over the country, cannabis passed by... Record margins in every single state. Mississippi, 70% of the vote was in favor of cannabis. South Dakota, 70% of the vote. Uh, Medical and recreational as well in South Dakota was 64%. 66% of the vote was for recreational in New Jersey. 60% in Arizona, 66% in Montana. I mean, cannabis is what really won this last election. I'm not going to talk about the two people at the top of the ticket, but the rest of the ticket went for cannabis and so you know hopefully you know the country will wake up and i don't think there's been any other initiative in this nation that's taken this larger percentage of the country to agree upon before it was actually turned into a national initiative so um hopefully that'll happen soon and i appreciate the fact that you're keeping an eye on the little guy and i, I say it that way because there's a lot of people who've left the little guys behind period you know and uh, we're looking at a, Something that may end up turning into just a big corp corporate bum. You know what? I'm not going to use the, the bad word, but you know, just some sort of bum crazy. Uh, so look, I got to take a little break, pay some bills, and then I'll come back. And I want to make sure everybody's been listening to Leslie Blount Montell. Know that our guest today is Mr. Nathaniel Pennington, who is the founder of the C and CEO of Humboldt C uh, Company. And he is an expert on creating new strains and has been breeding cannabis and working to restore rivers and the salmon population in Humboldt County, California for over 20 years. And he's got a really unbelievable strong affinity to community area and and, uh, Humboldt started multiple nonprofit organizations. We'll talk a little bit about some of those when we come back. I want to talk a little bit more about your efforts to literally come up with not a singular phenotype, but Looking at hunting out the best. So let's talk about that when we come back. I'll take a little break. Make sure you stay tuned to Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Hey, guys, again, thanks so much for tuning in to Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And in this episode, we have been talking to Mr. Nathaniel Pennington, who's the guest today, who's the founder and CEO of the Humboldt County, the Humboldt Sea Company. He's an expert on creating new strains and has been breeding cannabis for over 20 years, he's living in the Humboldt County area and been doing so has a really strong affinity for the community. He started several nonprofit organizations and he's working really, really hard to make sure that we have efficacious medicine. At our fingertips nationwide, not just in California. Right now, you are selling your seeds in California, Oregon, Maine and Oklahoma. Do You have any plans to ex- to expand, uh, Nathaniel? You
1: know, I think um we we want as many people to have access to the medicine that is cannabis. So why would we not? So the answer is absolutely. We 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 think that we can help people. You know, I started this company because people kept ask kept coming back year after year and saying, Boy, those seeds that you gave me last winter, you know, turned out to be the my best plants this year. And and so I didn't set out to make a bunch of money with cannabis seeds i set out to help people and i feel like if we're if that ever veers from the course i'm gonna lose interest real quick but so far we've been helping the crap out of a lot of people to grow some really good cannabis so
0: (laughs) and now you you are you restricted in selling i guess your seeds are a certain percentage of THC and CBD because it's not been created yet. It's a CBG. So can you sell seeds in all 50 States that you chose to?
1: Well, it's definitely a gray area. And uh, if there's any like really hotshot attorneys out there listening and they could give me an answer, I would love to hear from them. But, you know, as of now we interpret the law that basically we grow, we, we have the hemp seed program that we do with the local tribe here. And those seeds, because of the 2018 Farm Bill, those seeds will become, you know, definitely uh, hemp-type cannabis with, you know, although rich with CBD and many beneficial qualities, unfortunately, you know, not able to have any of the THC component. Um, But we have kind of stuck within the state-by-state law with the THC varietals and we kind of feel like that is the intent um, that the farm bill came across with, but it is, like I said, it is really a gray area and I'm not going to say that, you know, the seeds haven't made their way all across the world because they do. And, and, you know, to be honest, that uh, it's something that we, we don't mind seeing that. So you know, it, it's, uh, it's interesting the space that we're in and the time that we're in. And I look forward to a lot more clarification. But for now, you know, we're following all of the rules that California has set forth, Oklahoma and Oregon and Maine. And, you know, we're going to enter as many markets as, as we have the bandwidth to be able to.
0: It seems kind of crazy to me, though, that you could be banned from selling a product that at the time of sale, is not the product that's illegal. I mean, you know, seeds do not, plants do not turn into THC for six weeks, you know, so six to seven weeks. And so, you know, I mean, if that's the case, that's like, I would say that you, you know, if if they were trying to come after you for selling a seed, then you could go after people for raising a baby. I mean, if a baby was gonna end up being a thief when they're 16 years old, then you should arrest the baby when the baby comes out of utero. uh, Really? Is that really what we're thinking about here? This is something kind of stupid to me. I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm, I'm thinking too hard about this, but it just seems yeah. to me that, you know, the product, if I crushed up all the seeds you sold me, uh, there wouldn't be any THC in them. So therefore, why right. would it be illegal?
1: Yeah, we do, you know, we do test the seeds and they. you're absolutely right. They don't have any THC in them at all. Uh, it's, I guess, what they turn into that... Um, there would potentially be concern about, but, but yeah, I mean, there are a lot of interpretations of that. And there's a lot of people that, that are, you know, taking a, a we're maybe we are just sometimes more scared because we had to live through, you know, years and years of prohibition. And, you know, in Humboldt County, I, we had helicopters that would, you know, fly all over the place and, and then raids that would, you know, and, and a lot of this, I think people sometimes think maybe they saw a Netflix thing or something like that, but humble is a very small, it's a community place. And oftentimes the volunteer fire and rescue chief was a little bit of a cannabis grower and a connoisseur and, and, that was the kind of thing where, you know, when when the raids were happening and and the federal government was really, really after cannabis in the 80s and 90s, it, it just was so ridiculous if you were here, because you know, here's this plant that you know we all knew was just honestly like a a wonderful medicine and a and a great thing. And here are all these, you know, family farms. And, and mom and pop operations, people that did wonderful things in the community that were getting hauled off and locked up for years and years. And, you know, I, 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 I hear you talk a lot about equity programs and social justice and, you know, that we need to, you know, figure out how to right these wrongs all around this country. Because years so many years of prohibition and you know like we have to do more equity programs we have to figure out how to get people out of prison no one should be in prison for growing this plant and i'm speaking to the choir right now montel but
0: you know Uh, my friend you're speaking to an audience out there that is listening and tuning in and we need to have more and more people like yourself and me out there literally just propagating this information we need to have people understand that an industry that's going to be you know, projected to be, you know, a $90 billion industry in the next two years or so um, needs to pay homage to those who made it happen. I mean, you know, the people that you're talking about that were locked up, who were growing a uh, plant in their backyard, and these are people who were, you know, ingesting tons of caustic medications that were sold in by pharmaceutical industry, but just trying to see if they could ease their pain in a different way. They're the ones who bore the brunt of this. And, you know, there's no reason why they're not included right now in the prosperity of this as they were in, you know, all of the negative of this. So I agree with you 100%. You know, you say preaching to the you are. But at the same time, let's preach to everybody who's listening. And people need to understand. And again, you know, the humble County, the humble Seed Company has been working really hard to make sure you produce good, solid medication that makes it easier for everyone. Easier to grow, easier to harvest, easier to extract from. Let's talk about this mega or this uh, phenotype mega hunt that you guys were involved in. What was that all about?
1: So you know, now we're back a little bit to the science of things, and um, one the, one of the most basic things that folks do who are plant breeders is cross crossing distinct populations and you know amazingly enough when you bring diverse genetics together that haven't intermingled for um sometimes you know time immemorial uh it it creates amazing things and you you get this array of what we call phenotypic expression and that is essentially just the outward expression of the plant and and you also create an array of of chemotype and that is you know more the constituents that can be chemically analyzed. For example, terpenes and THC and CBD and all the cannabinoids and flavonoids, everything like that. So we go out and we, what we did in, in 2018, 19, and and even this last summer, uh, although it was certainly more challenging was went and formed this collaborative group of cultivators in California and you know, having had uh, legalization, or whatever you want to call it recreational cannabis in, in California, beginning in 2018, we saw that there was going to be some, some drawbacks because of some of the things that you discussed earlier, the scale and big money coming into the space and potentially taking over. But we knew that as you know, longtime cannabis community, folks here in in Humboldt County and in just Northern California in general, that we needed to use our experience and innovation to make the best out of of this current situation. And so for me, that was taking these big, big farms um, or even just the conglomeration of, of farms in Humboldt where we could look at collaboratively look at 10,000 plants in one season and go through and pick the best, you know, we narrowed it down to eventually to around 10 and all the laboratory testing that followed. And, and really, you know, so we started by narrowing it down to like 50 and then, uh, lab tests and sort of like feedback from individuals, uh, helped us narrow it down to 10, but That is what you do in plant breeding is you kind of start from that's almost starting from scratch because the eventual goal is to create uh, a seed line or a genetic that can consistently produce uh, that type of expression or phenotype and and chemotype so that people can plant something out in their garden and know that they're going to end up with their intent. And, um, but to begin You really want to look at uh, a huge array of different expressions. And so that was amazing. Um, I felt lucky to be able to work with, you know, so many different other groups in the industry. We had nurseries involved. We had dispensary owners and dispensary workers. And of course, we had, you know, just cannabis, avid cannabis consumers, uh, a couple Big reggae acts came along with us and and you know it was just a great um it was kind of a, a long weekend that that we ended up finally sort of having this judge you know judging all ten thousand plants and not everybody got to see ten thousand plants and certainly not smoke ten thousand but but we did go all over the county um even some in mendocino too and boy, it was an amazing time. And, and so we've just continued that effort and we continue to kind of narrow down this, these giant populations and, and find really, really special cultivars or strains as we call them in cannabis, and then, um, make them into seed form or even just release them, uh, as a clone or a rooted cutting. And, uh, it, it's been amazing. It's been an honor, and I, I think if folks are more interested, they can check out our website and look. We've actually made uh I think around forty five minutes, so it's kind of a short film about all of that effort and it's it's interesting, it's fun to watch, I think.
0: and are you planning to do it each year?
1: Yeah, so we've been doing it each year, and this last year, of course, with the pandemic um, presented challenges, so we didn't you know go look at 10,000 and have a a group um, weekend meeting together to do it. But we've still, you know, actually, I'm sitting here at our office in our licensed facility in Eureka, California. And later today, I'm having uh, a group from Humboldt Farms come in and we're still rating all of the different types. This is actually some data that (laughs) I printed out this morning. So, you know, we're, we're kind of a data driven company and, but at the same time, you know, we're still like, you got to enjoy the cannabis to know, you know, what you want to choose and what, how you want to direct your breeding.
0: Once you, once you choose, let's say, you know, a phenotype that you like, I mean, they clearly do the, the analytical work on it. Have you noticed that that particular, you know, phenotype can then be replicated by any grower that grows it, one. Two, once it's replicated, does it elicit a similar response in those who consume it across the board, or do each person who consumes it kind of have their own response?
1: That's a really good question. Um, you know, to your, to your first question, an interesting thing that is, is a study, although inadvertent, um, it's a competition. Where we we've actually provided genetics for the competition for the last two years, uh, in in collaboration recently with a local nursery called Hendricks Farms. But basically, we create a strain that we feel like has a bunch of redeeming qualities, and we hand it off to uh, Hendricks Nursery, and then they propagate it and clonally. So that means that every single you know, they, they make hundreds of them and every single one is absolutely genetically identical. And then that's given to, let's just say, 100 farmers, you know, around 100 farmers. They all grow it. And then all of the cannabinoids and the turpins, and every bit of chemical analysis that we're capable of in, in this day and age with science is performed on that those individual entries because it is a competition and then that data is all compiled and people are awarded on their you know strengths and so to your point as to can every grower affect the genetic and h- how it um expresses itself and the answer is 100% yes like you know we had the same varietal the same clone sometimes produce 30% THC, which is a very, very strong, you know, as far as THC goes, all the way down to 15%. And so there is a lot to be said about the cultivator. And, and I'm not saying that the 30% variety is always better, because sometimes the varieties that were lower percentage actually had a, a winning amount of turpins. And so, you know, we had in our 2019 competition, someone actually had five percent turpins in their canopy uh, in their sample. And that is, you know, almost unheard of. That's definitely one of the highest terpen contents that that the laboratory has ever seen. So they retested it and and sure enough, it was over slightly over five percent, which and and so that's but, interesting. To your right. second point how will it affect people? I think that it also does affect people differently, but I I definitely think that, you know, when we're going and looking and choosing cannabis that we want to purchase, consume, whatever, that I I do believe that you can take a lot of those, the, the lab results and use them to help inform your decisions. But I don't think that people should always just take it as sort of the, you know, end all be all for, for what to choose.
0: Craig, well, I I agree with you when you talk about the fact that, you know, 15% THC to a 30% THC doesn't necessarily always elicit a higher buzz. People seem to believe that that's what happens, but that's not necessarily true. It may lengthen the duration of your euphoria, um, But is the intensity truly different? That's for the individual, I guess, to interpret for themselves. And and until we do more and more research, we won't know the answer to that question. Um, You know, let's talk a little bit about about uh, you've created kind of this this idea between you know regular plants and feminized seeds, regular seeds and feminized seeds. Why don't you explain what that is? Sure. So uh,
1: cannabis, uh, a lot of people, I think are really accustomed to just seeing the female version of the cannabis plant. And cannabis is actually what's called a, a dioecious plant, meaning that it, ha- it has, like, like humans, it has, you know, a male and a female, and they are separate entities. They are, you know, separate organisms. Um, whereas a lot of plants are, are called monoecious because they have, both sex organs on the same plant. So let's just say corn, um, it has the tassels that are up the, you know, up the top of the plant. And then the the actual corn itself has silk and the silk is part of the sex organ of, of corn. And so that is a monoecious plant being that it's all in the same plant. So um, when you propagate cannabis from seed, Oftentimes in nature, and that is one of the things that's caused cannabis to be evolutionarily plastic a little bit more than other varieties because it actually having that male and female entity causes genes to to actually mix more in the wild than they would if if it's a, a monoecious or a perfect flower. So that has caused cannabis to evolve faster in a way even in in the wild or even in a place that was more you know like in in the himalayas where it's grown a lot in the foothills and by more you know indigenous kind of grows and what we call land race types of cannabis it still did have an evolution there with humanity because of just the simple act of of choosing one female that produced really, you know, good smoke or, or good medicine or was larger or whatever, and keeping the seeds from that because of that intermingling. But in the long run, what you're, after as a cannabis consumer, what has the most cannabinoids or, you know, active ingredients, let's just say, is the female part of the plant. The male mostly just produces a lot of pollen and the pollen, you know, in nature blows around and and gets onto the female. So we're more as human, humanity is more attracted to the female cannabis plant. And so one thing that we've uh, helped to develop and, and are producing now is seeds that are female only or 99, you know, point eight percent female in in our research. And so that is convenient for the backyard grower because now they don't have to learn, you know, early stage sex identification for, you know, horticulture and for cannabis in specific, they can just plant cannabis as if it was, you know, they were planting some cherry tomatoes and uh, be able to grow and, and almost always end up with a successful harvest with female flowers that that are not full of seeds either. So that that has been um, definitely revolutionary for us. We're, we didn't invent the science behind um, making Female-only cannabis plants, but we've taken we've made some advances that has allowed us to produce our entire catalog as as that if if people so wish. And then, of course, we do have folks in this community, and we support this uh, a lot, who are still wanting to you know sometimes even breed their own cannabis. So it's it's a phenomena that people are so I mean, humans, and I think you touched on this earlier with our endocannabinoid system. We're, we all, I feel like we involve, evolved with cannabis since time immemorial. <laughs> like we've been, cannabis has been in our human sphere forever, I'll just say. <laughs> and
0: well, you're right.
1: And, and so, you know, we, we've been missing it for a hundred years at least. And uh, I I almost feel like it's, you know, it's like we're being reunited with our family when we get back together with this plant a lot of the time, even if people never in a million years thought that they would ever, oh, I don't, you know, smoke weed. And and I get that because, you know, there's conservative people all over the place and we don't want to alienate those folks, because sometimes, you know, everybody needs medicine and everybody needs help sometimes in this world. Well,
0: those folks that were alienated now, back about 120 years ago, weren't alienated at all because most of them ate a hemp based porridge in the mornings and right. consumed hemp, you know, as part of their weekly, daily diet because we knew. And that's really when you take a look at some of the illnesses that we're facing today, that may be part of the reason why we have so many different illnesses that weren't around 100 years ago because we haven't been feeding that system, which is really responsible for our cellular homeostasis. And we know that now for a fact, um, you know, I'm going to run out of time quick, but I, I want to get into some of the, the social justice work that you've been doing, um, especially the, uh, in Humboldt County with the indigenous peoples there. Why don't you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So, you know, Humboldt is no stranger to what happened when, you know, Cologne, uh, this land, the United States was colonized. Um, we actually are blessed with this incredibly, like, intact indigenous culture that's here. And and so being uh, in this community and in this place that is so, you know, has always been indigenous land and and I think will always be, as a company, we, you know, we have quite a bit of, of the companies, just the company itself is partly indigenous. I, I would say, because we're, you know, we've got indigenous people that we work with, you know, I'm just a, a white guy that's made its way across this country and thankfully have been, uh, I want to say fairly just welcomed to this place. But, uh, the, those people that when you live in a place and especially when you're so, in touch with the natural environment when you're you know a farmer when you know study salmon biology all the the things that that i've done uh, it's even just more evident that the people in that place have much to teach us about how to live here and we haven't been listening for years that's one of the reasons why california freaking burns down every year is that we haven't you know we didn't learn from the indigenous people that, you know, you actually have to work with fire, like they had done, you know, since, since time immemorial, I'll say again, but, um you know, we need, we have a lot of lessons to learn from those folks, but I feel like as far as, you know, social justice and, and equity, um, you know, up here in the northern part of California—that is the community that that really I think needs to get some benefit from from the cannabis industry. We're working towards that as a company, uh, and and I feel like you know California has done some social equity funding, and but I think that a lot more is needed, and and uh, you know I just encourage all of our local legislature. Here and and we are fairly involved with with that um, to to keep that happening in cannabis because it is it's going to be a billion dollar industry. People should have access to some of that capital that have been so negatively affected by it.
0: Absolutely. Talk about your nature your nature rights council.
1: <laughs> yeah, so that is uh, a small nonprofit organization that we founded about six years ago and you know the seed company really just helps to provide administration because we don't believe that you know we believe that like I said the local indigenous especially the, the younger generation in the indigenous community here um is is best positioned to be leaders as you know time as they grow up and so the Nature Rights Council is is really just an umbrella for their projects, and and we sometimes ha- help write grants, but you know we're really just dotting I's and crossing t's. Um, you know sometimes the education system in this country can fail people that don't come from affluent areas, and that doesn't mean that those people don't have just as much to offer our country and so you know what we're there for is simply to dot i's and cross t's and you know uh help with grant reports and that's that's what we do but we've got several different youth programs some of them ag programs because as we start to see the salmon decline which is really unfortunate um we're starting to see what we call food deserts in indigenous, you know, primarily indigenous areas. And so places that don't have grocery stores, so to speak, uh, you know, that literally people are living with off-gas station type food. But but
0: every in a city across America these days, food deserts. But yeah, you're right.
1: It's horrible. And so, you know, folks, they we're more connected with hunting and fishing. And as some of those resources just are declining with changes in the environment, um, we are having some, you know, this, we we just finished a big agricultural program in uh, Klamath, California, where, you know, we, we put in a, a large garden, but the kids really, the kids do it. They run the programs and they pick the direction that, that we go as a nonprofit group. So.
0: Well, let me me ask you, what do you think uh, the next two to three years holds in store for the cannabis industry here in the United States? Let's start here first.
1: Well, you know, I feel like we've been talking a lot about how, you know, and this is a little cliche, but the concept of craft cannabis in, in the cannabis recreational space, um, as it, you know, people are, I think, always comparing it to like craft beer. And I I don't, I think that cannabis has even more of a potential to enjoy some of the benefits of uh, that, that are there for small businesses and small producers. So ironically, I, in a lot of industries, you know, when there's huge influxes of capital you know oftentimes those companies have such a head start that it is hard for mom and pops and and the original you know industry to keep up i mean we saw that with ag across the country but i really do think that i mean the first let's just say if the last 4 years was kind of the beginning of this real Legalization move that, although we saw massive investments from heavily capitalized, you know, stock traded companies, the the track record hasn't been that they've really been the successful companies. And Wait,
0: right, right there on that thought, I'm sorry I mean to cut you off, but I mean I think you you've nailed it because a lot of these companies that came in with the big funding were people who for 20, 30 years lied and said cannabis doesn't work. So how all of a sudden do you take a doctor who didn't believe in cannabis and say, now we got a company and do will put you in charge of it to grow something that works? It can't happen. We've got all these people who have jumped up to the table because they were looking at the green rush, trying to make as much money as they could, not giving a shit about the patients, leaving patients on the battlefield trying to make as much money as they could, and they lost touch. They lost it. They didn't understand what they were doing. They can they could build the biggest facilities in the world. They can build the biggest grows in the world. They can pump in as much money as they want, the lighting into water. That doesn't fucking matter. doesn't matter because yeah. your heart isn't there, and you didn't give a crap about this plant for 30 years while you were out there fighting against it, and now all of a sudden you think you're going to make money off of it, You know, dude, what's that old thing about be careful what you wish for, or, or, you know, uh, uh, just the fact that, you know, you kind of get what you reap, what you sowed. You know, you sowed for 30 years and it doesn't work. Now you try to make it work and it ain't gonna work for you. That's karma, my friend. You know, and I think that's what's happened in this industry. And yet those people who were in it then saw their losses that has taken place in the last two to three years, won't go back and reach out to those who started this to begin with. That's why I've had a real problem with what we claim to be social equity because it's a bunch of crap. It's a bunch of lies. Social equity isn't social equity. It's trying to buy somebody to come onto your company so you can make more money. That's not what it's about. It's social equity should be supporting those people who started this whole thing. I you mean know what I mean? Yep. Yeah, uh, so I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, but go ahead.
1: Well, I, that's... Right on. Like I, exactly. And so I I just hope that the tendency that it's shown for cannabis to just chew that up and spit it out continues. And I, I mean, I couldn't have asked for any better for these first, you know, three or four years where all of a sudden some of the original, you know, community is actually starting to reap some of the benefits and thrive a little bit and we still got a long road ahead of us like we have to be you know we have to really focus on the social equity stuff we have to 100% follow up and make sure that it's not just you know a shell for another corporate takeover and that the the real benefits stay in these communities that have been so negatively affected And, and it's communities that does it because that's how you get away from, you know, having this, this name on, on a license. And then there's a switcheroo that happens down the road and, oh, we can't stop that because this is America and capital. And, you know, like, but if equity is bound to community and, you know, benefit to, you know like parts of Oakland that we used to go down there and sell our cannabis and the economy that that went into certain areas of of Oakland, California I watched those places just you know get better and better and and all of a sudden parks and you know more children and so yeah community it it feels like to me is some of the best way to make sure that these equity programs are successful and, but we need to do more of them. And Absolutely.
0: well, Nathaniel, look, my friend, I, I tell you, I could talk to you for hours and I know you got hours worth of things to say, we got to get you back on here. So you can talk a little bit more about all the work you've done and, and, and literally changing the flows of rivers in the world and actually giving people an idea of how to, better take care of indigenous species that grow and, and thrive in certain areas of the country and certain communities. So I want to talk about that with you. I want to talk about some more of your your nonprofit work, but we're out of time today and, and know that maybe you know, you know you always have a home here. Whenever you want to come back, let me know. I got big questions for you about everything from China to Colombia to all over the world. So you know we got a lot to talk about, my friend. I hope you have a great day. I hope you stay safe. I got to thank all of our viewers who have tuned in today to watch you. And again, we've been talking all day to Nathaniel Pennington, who is the founder and CEO of Humboldt Seed Company. And, you know, uh, I know maybe right now you don't think you can get a seeds in your state. You might be able to, so reach out to it. If somebody wanted to reach out to you, where do they go? How do they get to you?
1: Yeah, just info at our e- uh, our webpage. It's all pretty easy. And
0: the webpage is dot Humboldt HumboldtSeedCompany.com. Com- Humboldt Thank you so much, Nathaniel, for being a part of us today. Would you stay well, stay healthy. We'll check you out next time. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments.